So, we left off with Ananias and Sapphira. Beginning of chapter 5, we talked about Barnabas quite a bit. So we know who Barnabas is. He's our He's our good example in this contrast that Luke's given us here. So let me, uh, first of all, let's do this. So we're going to change our analogy. If if y'all remember the analogy I gave at the beginning was like this, where we were shot out of a cannon. The cannon shot being the resurrection. And then uh, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. we're, We're propelling the movement forward. <clears throat> so there's, these are like, I, I said a rail gun, like magnets on a rail gun. Each event propels the, propels the message forward. Well, now we're going to change that metaphor, that analogy to waves on a beach because things are changing now. Instead of being propelled along by every event, we're starting to, it's almost like we're trying to swim out and the waves are coming in. So a wave comes but the, and then the church goes through the wave and comes up on the other side. So there's there's a little bit of uh, opposition. That's what I'm saying. So we're seeing some opposition now. So that's the new analogy. Um, we saw it when Peter and John were arrested. You know, that's a, a wave coming in. Some some resistance. They came out the other side even stronger with the with the church grew to 5,000. So it seems like all these events we're seeing, an event happens, some Peter might have a chance to preach, we see the church. The church, 3,000 were saved that day. The lepers healed, Peter preaches, 5,000. It just keeps, you know, we, an event and then, and then we get a picture of the church, an event and a picture of the church. Well, now we're starting to see events that are negative. They get arrested. We see a picture of the church. This happens with Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. There's a picture of the church. So we see that no matter what happens, the church continues to continues to grow, go forward. The way this guy put it in his writing was when you're trying to swim out from the beach, waves are coming in. If you just try to walk through the wave, you're going to end up on your back. You have to jump into the wave and come up the other side. So that's what's happening. We're just going through these waves of oppression. So let's start with this. I'm going to read you his his uh, beginning to the Ananias and Sapphira uh, section. We'll talk about it, and then I'll read the summary at the end. So this won't take very long. All right, this is from... Preaching the Word, Acts by R. Kent Hughes, chapter 9, keeping things on the up and up. So he says, things are going great in the new church. Always the enemy of God's loving plan, Satan, had already begun a counterattack of outward persecution through the civil and religious authorities in Acts chapter 4. But the tactic was not terribly creative or effective, so now the devil tried a different strategy and attacked the church from within. His agents were a husband and a wife. The wife's name was Sapphira, which is Aramaic for beautiful, and the husband's name was Ananias, which in Hebrew means God is gracious. 
few people's lives have contradicted their names more dramatically. So he says they had they had witnessed Barnabas's magnificent act and had seen the great respect that it drew from the fellow believers. So they announced that they too would sell their property and give it to the church. However, they both agreed to claim to give the entire sale amount, but but then to hold some back, making everyone think they had given it all. So then he goes on to say this. So what does God think of spiritual deception? Remember what I told y'all last week? Spiritual pre pretense may be hazardous to your health. That's the title of this little section. Warning. Spiritual pretense may be hazardous to your health. So what does God think of spiritual pretense? This is an extremely serious issue for the church. Ananias and Sapphira appeared to be Christians, and I believe they were, as did St. Augustine and Alexander McLaren and such contemporaries as Richard Longnecker. We ourselves are terribly susceptible to their sin, a spiritual error to which believers still fall. Their punishment was a sanctifying discipline for the church, to use Jeremy Taylor's words. This is an important but for some reason neglected text. Spurgeon, in his 60 volumes on the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Anthology, 20 Centuries of Preaching, has no sermon on this text. Yet it remains an immensely important passage of Scripture. Dr. Barnhouse, on the basis of this text, would never let his congregation sing the third stanza of the song at Calvary, which goes like this. Now I have given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. You see, he said, if God acted in the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. The truth is we would not have a pastoral staff either. So why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Possibly the Christian life was new, mysterious to them, and they just wanted to be on the side, on the inside of things, to really belong. Or perhaps they craved special recognition by the leadership. Or maybe they were swept up by the bandwagon effect. Applause or acceptance or acclaim may have been overly important to them. At the worst, maybe they were making a crass attempt to rise within the power structure, but I doubt they began with such low intentions. Here's what he says. I think that when they saw Barnabas's great generosity, they genuinely wanted to follow suit. But their motivations were mixed, and when the money was in hand, they could not live up to their avowed intention. They were undoubtedly new Christians. And I'm not so sure of that, but a lot of people think so, and I always understood it that way. And the habits of the old life are only a breath away. They overestimated themselves, which is a common error of new believers. I always understood that they were Christian and that uh, God just called them home because of what was going on. So, But some people apparently don't think so, but maybe they weren't. Anyway, let's read, this, let's read the section. We'll, we'll go back to, to uh, like 4.36 and start there, get a run to start. So now Joseph... A Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And I 
apparently the understanding is that that tract of land was on Cyprus. Because apparently Levites could not own property inside inside Israel. So everybody seems to think that that was that land he sold was on the island of Cyprus. Not that it matters, but anyway. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. Bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. And great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for such and such a price? And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So that last verse there would include everybody, right? The church and everybody else who heard about it. So, uh, Let's talk about it. So what we're seeing here is with Ananias and Fire, it could be, could be pride, could be could be greed, probably both. They want to be recognized in the church. They want to keep some of the money. But I think we're the biggest problem here is their hypocrisy. Spiritual pretense, you know. Uh, Dr. Uh, What's his face up in Tyler? He said, a hypocrite is somebody who will come to church on Sunday, pray for what they did on Saturday, and then pray for what they're going to do on Monday. And uh, throughout history, what most people say about the church, most non-church people, non-believers, first thing they say, a bunch of hypocrites. So this is obviously a problem in the church. We have, you know, there's hypocrisy. Who in here is not a hypocrite? Ever. <laughs> okay. But um, this particular instance, like I said last week, this is just like, it seems odd to me that this account would be here. I'm, I mean, it's obviously important or it wouldn't be here. And that Peter immediately knows that they're lying. And we don't really know how that is, but we, got, I'm, we have to assume that he was... That's communicated to him somehow through the leading of the Spirit. And I want, there's something else we need to notice. Peter does not, he does not do this. Okay, Some commentators have said through the, through the centuries, through the years, that this story is not true. 
because Peter does not give them a chance to repent. And um, somehow they think that Peter is the one who executed them. That's not what happened here. Peter just called him out on it, and then God, God's the one. That, Peter's not in charge of when somebody lives or dies, but some commentators have said that this story cannot be true. Or if it is true, then Peter was wrong because he didn't give them an opportunity to repent, which he obviously gives set up, he gives Sapphira a chance. He asked her, is this the price of the land or not? Well, if her heart was right, she would be um, to God first. And she knew her husband was wrong. And she had that choice to go, I got to do what's right. Oh, yeah. Chose. He gave her every opportunity to, to confess and to give, to tell him, to tell him how this is how much we actually sold the land for. But she, oh, no, no, that was it. So I'm kind of torn on the question of saved, not saved, saved or deceived, which we don't have to know that. The text doesn't tell us that. So. Or it does say that Satan has filled their heart. That's what I was just going to say. In, in verse 3, Peter implies that Satan. That, well, he doesn't imply. He says it straight out. I think that what that implies is that they Satan had gained a foothold in the church through Ananias and Sapphira. Saved or unsaved really is. Not the question. My big question here is, why did God kill these two people? And I think that's why, because Satan had gained a foothold. The, the church is new. It's like a young. It's like they're you know they're young. They're like a child. It's a young church, and Satan had gained a foothold here through these two people, and God just took them out. He said, "I can't allow this," which he called them home. Right? He called them to, to paradise. So. But like he called it a sanctifying. What did what, what I say? It was a sanctifying. Sanctifying discipline. So, but it was pretty extreme discipline because this is a very important time in the, in the formation of the church. He even goes on here to say that if God had not acted in the way he did, would the church have continued to grow in the way it did or would it have, would it have put it off, maybe a little beard off of the path? So, this is obviously God's sovereign hand guiding the church the way he wants it to go. And, um, you know, we can't really judge Ananias' fire because I certainly can't say I've never tried to act like I'm more spiritual or holy than I actually am. Maybe if, if I lived at this time, that may have been me that did that. You know? In 2 Kings 5, Gaza, Gaza's Greek, Elisha asked him, uh, where have you been? Let's go take money from Naaman. That's right. And he 
And he actually says to him, uh, where have you been, Beza? And he replies to him, your servant went nowhere. So he even gave him a chance to come to Yeah, and since he applied to him, he basically uh, gives him the leprosy that made him. That's right. That's a good, that's a good uh, analogy. Yes, he gives him the, the, the leprosy. We talked about Naaman a few weeks ago. Actually, that, that old event. I didn't bring up the fact that Gaza walked away with the leprosy that Naaman had gotten rid of. So right here, let's just go over a few key points. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. So in verse 3, Peter says, why has Satan? So he's implying... To me, that Satan's gained a foothold in the church, in the young church. That can't be allowed. And God takes care of that, not Peter. Um, and also, it appears to me that God is he's establishing the authority of the apostles by telling Peter, hey, they, they're not being honest here. Confront them about it. And then they die at Peter's feet. Okay. So remember, this is early church, and so God is using this to establish the authority of the apostles. Okay. So in verse 8, Peter gives Sapphira a chance to come clean. She chooses not to do so. And so we can't know what would happen, but I'm sure if she would have said, yeah, you know what, Peter, we lied. This was the actual price. Maybe, you know, she wouldn't have died. And if she had known her husband was dead, she might have died. Maybe, maybe. It just shows that he he led his wife down the path of destruction yep. by his lies. That's right. She was going to follow him. And... So let's see what else we got. Uh, verse eleven is the first time that the word ecclesia is used in the book of Acts, which is I thought was interesting. The word that word church. I think some some translations. Back in an earlier verse, when it says many were added to the church that day, that's not ecclesia. That's really many, a better a better translation is many were added to their number that day. This is the first time ecclesia is used. It's only the third time in the New Testament. Actually, there's once in Matthew 16 when Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And in Matthew 18... He says, "If you, if your brother, if you go to your brother with two, with another witness, and you still won't listen, you bring it to the ecclesia, bring it to the church." But this is the first time this community of believers is called the church. So ecclesia, I guess y'all know, means called out once or called out from. And um, so that's the main thrust of that of that section, I believe. Satan has gained a foothold. We're told this for that reason, that this is Satan working against church like he had tried to work through the Sadducees. Now he's going with the end of the church. God nips that in the bud. That's given to us as a warning and just, you know, for instruction because it's a big part of the, of the narrative, you know. But this is what we've got to remember. This is all narrative. So there's there's a reason that's there, even though a lot of people skip it. And anyway, I think there's a lot with uh, being placed right here, and you got Barnabas and being called the son of encouragement. And if you look that word up, it's 
it's a big, huge word, and it can have, um, you know, called out. But and and as you read what all that word can mean, it sounds just like what Jesus did. He he came, he spoke, he he called people out, he he declared, he did all these things. And and so here we are, Barnabas. That's who he was. And now we go into Peter, and. And he's he's gone out, and and I just have to think, what wasn't he full of great fear? Like if I'm talking to somebody and I'm calling your sin out, and you drop dead at my feet, that would be pretty horrid. And and you know Peter had to have felt great fear in in the responsibility to do that and um, I mean it, it was like the whole church and it didn't say except the apostles <laughs> oh, this this came known widely we're fitting to see that Let's, let me just read this conclusion here for this section and we'll move on Let's see what if y'all gonna notice the next is another picture of the church right we get just it follows, keeps following the pattern an event happens, here's what here's how the church responds. Another event happens, here's how the church responds. This event happens, here's how the church responds. So here's the here's the kind of his summary, conclusion, wrap up, whatever you want to call it, of this section about Ananias and Sapphira. And this let me just read this these couple of quotes too, because I thought this was really good. There's two quotes. One's from the Principles of Psychology by William James which is it's a very well-known psychological book. And another one from Dr. Samuel Johnson. It's about deception and lying. So in William James's classic Principles of Psychology, it says this, Could the young but realize how soon they will become mere walking bundles of habits, they would give more heed to their conduct while in this plastic state. That means when they're young. We are spinning our own fates, good or evil, and never to be undone. Every smallest stroke of virtue or of vice leaves its never-so-little scar. The drunken Rip Van Winkle in Jefferson's play excuses himself for every fresh dereliction by saying, quote, I will not count this time. Well, he may not count it, but it is being counted nonetheless. Down among his nerve cells and fibers, the molecules are counting it registering and storing it up to be used against him when the next temptation comes. Nothing we ever do is in strict scientific literalness, literalness wiped out. Of course, this has its good side as well as its bad side. And then he says, this is basically true, though, of course, the grace of God can change us from the inside out. Nevertheless, habits of deceit are easily formed and hard to break. Realizing this, Dr. Samuel Johnson wrote long before William James this, quote, Accustom your children constantly to this, telling the truth. If a thing happened at one window, and they, when relating it, say it happened at another window, do not let that pass, but instantly check them. You do not know where deviation from truth will end. It is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in the world. And he finishes with this. Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira about their heart deception. 
Their story is a call to confront ourselves. Do I practice spiritual deceit? Do I attempt to make others think I am more committed than I actually am? These are serious questions. In the larger picture, it is a matter of life and death. Maybe not our own, but someone else's, perhaps our children, our grandchildren, our relatives, our neighbors. Possibly God is calling us to confront another believer, as Peter did. Nathan did the same to King David when he said, You are the man, in 2 Samuel 12, 7. 12, 7. We must help each other remain honest and obedient to God. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 11, A great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. They began to honestly assess what God wanted of them and where they were in their spiritual lives. Verses 12 through 16 record a continuance of great power manifesting itself in remarkable wonders and the expansion of the church. When the church is great, with great unity, great grace, great power, and great care, it is perpetuated by great honesty. We must keep our spiritual life on the up and up. This demands some practical steps. First, we should take an honest look at our lives regarding deceit. Are we truthful people? Do we engage in exaggeration and coloring? Are we promoting spiritual deception about our own commitments? Are we trying outwardly or subtly to make ourselves appear to be what we are not? Perhaps to acquire objectivity, it would be helpful to seek the perspective of another person, your spouse, if you are married, or perhaps a trusted, honest friend. Second, honestly lay the results before the Lord. Repent of all sins, relying on His grace. Ask Him to remove habits of deception so that truth becomes a habit instead. Third, covenant that with His help you will consciously refrain from lying in all its forms and will repent immediately from any failure in this area. And here's the prayer. Oh God, show me any habits of deception in my life. I now renounce any lies I am using to make others think I am more spiritual than I really am. Cleanse me of all dishonesty and help me to walk in the light as you are in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So the next chapter is called The Liberty of God's Children. And it begins at 17, but we're going to talk about this section from 12 through 12 through 16. We'll just read over it real quick. It says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So y'all see the pattern here? And Ananias and Sapphira get sanctified, okay, and then he jumps right into this. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. It doesn't even give us a number this time, it just says multitudes. So we can just, you know, infer from that statement that the church is continuing to grow at the same rate if not faster, but now people are beginning to count the costs. Okay, now people have heard what happened to Ananias' fire, and they realize and this ain't just a social club, this is real. 
This is real religion. It's serious. Jesus really is Lord. God really is at work here in this time. He really is building a true church here. This ain't just some, uh, hey, man, if you join, you get free stuff, and, you know, everybody loves you. That's Solomon's porch, yes, on the south side of the temple, overlooking the pool of Siloam. That's where they always meet, because that's the only place that'll hold them all. Just about every time you, you, it says they all met together, we can assume they're at Solomon's porch right there. Um, so it's not a social club. They're having, to, they're starting to count the cost here. J.C. Ryle and his book holiness talks about that quite a bit about counting the cost this is not uh, this life we're called to it's not uh, without its cost okay and so I know that's a little confusing there the way that's worded it says the apostles were performing many signs and wonders among the people. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. To me, I guess what that's saying is some people were afraid now because of what happened to them, but they still held the church in high esteem. They still were like, what we see happening here is amazing, and these people seem so happy and joyful, and, and they're helping the needy and they're taking care of the widows and the orphans but now some of them are like eh it seems a bit much maybe I don't know but that's the way that's worded I read that several times and and it's just it's kind of just the way it's worded it kind of confused me a little bit but MacArthur's notes kind of helped me. He says that in verse 13 where it says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. He says, uh, the unbelievers had respect for the followers of Jesus but feared the deadly potential of joining the church. And then in 14 he says, while the unbelievers stayed away due to fear of the consequence of sin, there were multitudes who heard the gospel witness, gladly believed, and joined the church. So there you go. So the church continues, even though these waves are kind of coming in, the church is going right through them and popping right back to the surface. And then he goes on to say, uh, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with their unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Now, does that where they were all being healed, does that include all the people laid in the streets so that maybe his shadow would fall on them? Or is that the people who were actually bringing people to see Peter? 
Here's what, here's what MacArthur says. The people truly believed he had divine healing power, and it might even extend to them through his shadow. Scripture does not say Peter's shadow ever healed anyone. In fact, the healing power of God through him seemed to go far beyond his shadow. In verse 16, it says people all being healed. And he says this, This outpouring of healing was an answer to the prayer in 4, 29 and 30. Y'all remember what that prayer was? That awesome prayer they prayed? He said, and now, they said, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bond service may speak your word with all confidence. And then it says, While you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So I'm not going to say whether his shadow healed people or not because it, it's the way it reads to me. I'm going to, I mean, I don't know. It just says multitudes of men and women were constantly added to the number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. That seems a little idolatrous to me. Like somehow Peter's, Peter's where the power is, Peter's shadow. Of course, people don't know. You know, a lot of these people... They're just, they just see people being healed, and they won't. Or the faith of what, what they saw, right? That, that's what it, even Jesus said. Your faith has healed you, right? Yeah. So I think that's more, more of a picture of that, of the people of less of Peter in those particular items. Because it says they were healed. So well, by God's will, they were healed. It wasn't anything Peter did at all. It was. I'm going to say it's possible. It's, it's possible. It's it's interesting if you look on getting a shadow healed. healed? Possible. It, look at it. Uh, nobody was healed by the by the shadow. It was all healed by faith. Through. Well, look, yeah, look. but I'm talking about with his shadow falling on them. They put him there so Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passes by, so they might be healed. It's interesting if you look at 1911. Uh, we're talking about Paul here now, but now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So that's what that's I was Paul. just thinking of that passage where they were Paul, right? taking Paul's handkerchiefs and healing people with it. Yeah. So yeah. the way it's worded, it's kind of unclear to me. Yeah. But it's all still by the power of God. Obviously, yeah. obviously, there's, there's no relics that have any power in them themselves. That would be going the wrong direction. Right. <laughs> Yes. So there's when two. Him, so he was so full of the spirit that they wanted right. that so spirit to fall on them. It was the power of Jesus. Jesus. It had nothing to do with what she grabbed. Right. Just like it would have nothing to do with the shadow that fell upon them. It would have everything to do with the faith that they were given through a change for That's why I'm saying it's possible that the shadow, Peter's shadow, falling on them could heal them. Notice there's two groups of people here. There's the people. You were laid in the streets on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, his shadow might fall on them. And then also the people from the cities were bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. Then it says, and they were all being healed. So some people were getting healed. I'm just what not sure if it was, was if it was shadow. people that were actually brought to the apostles for specific healing or if somebody just put it on the street so that they might walk by. I don't know. So that's all I'm saying. I can't be certain there. But a lot of people were being healed. 
Well, the question you, you got to ask yourself, you don't really know who's getting the glory. If, yeah, if Peter's like getting the glory, then that's wrong. Right. right? And it's and we're saying the shadow. So his shadow couldn't have healed. It was the faith that the people had by bringing them to right. a, a apostle of Jesus. That would be where the healing would, would happen. It kind of reminds me of the woman. <clears throat> He yeah. said, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, right. I know I'll that's be here. That's what I was just talking about. Correct. I think that's but, what it is. But, but he said that you're the faith that's made that's correct. Well, that's why I'm, it brings me a part of this. If somebody says, just bring me out to the street so that one of the apostles may walk by and maybe their shadow will fall over me and I'll be healed. Yeah. I can say, that's, that's, that's why I say it sounds plausible to me. I can't say for certain because the way it's worded is, Right. There's two groups of people here, but then it says, and they, and they were all being healed. So whatever happened, a lot of people are being healed in Jerusalem. Okay, so this this thing that's happening is huge. I'm sure everybody in Jerusalem knows about this. They've heard, at least heard about what's happening around the temple and these new believers in Jesus who claim Jesus is the Messiah. It signs of one. Yeah, there's signs of wonders taking place, and man, people, you know, it's just this craziness going on, and they're growing so fast. There's thousands, just there's hundreds of people a day. I'm sure are being added to their number. The spirit is just bringing people to faith, granting people faith and repentance all over the place. They hear the apostles preach, and people are being saved. That's the main thing. People are being saved. But the people are being healed to bring attention to what's happening. They're, they're, it, it's their, what's the word? They're, it's establishing the authority of these apostles. All these healings taking place through these apostles are showing that these men are from God. They're not, they're not false. They're not talking about a false Messiah. You can't argue with a changed life. Remember how we talked about that when the late, when the late man was healed? And the, and the Sadducees had nothing to say in reply. You cannot argue with the changed life. And a 40-year-old man who's never walked, standing up and walking around, that's a pretty, pretty amazing witness. Okay? So, the next event, next wave comes. <clears throat> Chapter 17. Verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. Sorry. Well, we're moving fast. <laughs> well, let's just read over it, this little section here. It says the imprisoned apostles are freed. This is pretty amazing. So, people were being healed, but the high priest rose up along with all his associates. This is the sect of the Sadducees. Remember what I said. Most of the stuff we see happening in Acts is Sadducees. And they were filled with jealousy. So they weren't coming up to them and saying, oh, you're teaching heresy or you're, you're, you're doing the wrong. They're jealous of them because the, all these people are standing in Solomon's porch listening to the apostles teach instead of being over in the court of the men or the court of the women hearing the, hearing the priests. They don't like that. Challenging their authority. Challenging their authority, yes. Taking away their their adoration, you know, they're they're interrupting them. They're, they're they're making trouble. So they were filled with jealousy. So they laid hands on the apostles, put them in a public jail. 
this is just like the first time. I guess it's late in the afternoon, too late to put them on trial, so they just stick them in jail. We'll, we'll grab them in the morning. We'll have our, we'll convene the Sanhedrin and we'll, we'll question them. So they, they throw them in a public jail. Um, Dr. Dyke said this is this, this jail is called uh, Fortress of Antonio. The same as same like San Antonio. It's called the Fortress of Antonio. It was a Roman place. This is where Jesus was flayed, they say, or they think. Same place, same jail where the Romans beat Jesus before the crucifixion. This is where they were put. It was used for Roman and Jewish, for Rome, you know, well, they used it for all. Okay. He says this is where they were taken. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand, and speak to the people in the, in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So, my underlying words here are go, stand, and speak. Y'all notice what the angel tells them. Go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this new life. That's what, this, that's what they mean by this life. It's this new life, this full life in Christ. And upon hearing this, they didn't come together and say, okay, well, let's get together some people to protect us. When we go back, they're going to try to rest. None of that. They just went and did what they were told. They entered the temple about daybreak and began to teach. They were divinely released. They were divine by the angel. He took them out of the prison. They were divinely commissioned by the angel to go stand and speak. And then they obeyed and did exactly what they were told. Well, we'll stop right there. I find there. it really interesting. You kind of keep going, and it says that they, they went and pretty much asked them to come stand in front of the council because they were worried because there were so many people that were that were there. They were always scared of the people that they would gather. Yeah. yeah. And so the only way they could get them, they figured they'd throw them in jail in the, in the evening time and then grab them before they gathered up a bunch of people. As they did, same with with Christ, right? They yes. got him in the nighttime so that they could punish him, so that they didn't have to fight through a crowd to do that. Same thing going through here, and then they were released from prison, and then they came and asked them essentially what it, what it's saying. When they came without without forcing them, they came and uh, went before them, and then they punished them. It's an amazing parallel. Yes, very 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 awesome parallel. If y'all if y'all notice, the story gives differently, but it's up yes. To well, they did get punished though. They did, yeah. and, and yeah. then they were praising God and the glory of God because they were able to get uh, suffer in the name of, of Christ, right? And that's that's story. coming, which is amazing. Yeah. But it's, it seems like every time something happens, Peter uh, Luke always makes a point to say something like this: the people held them in high esteem. Keep saying that. That's not a throwaway line. That's why the Sadducees and the Pharisees, most of the Sadducees, can't just come arrest them and put them to death right. like they would obviously do if they thought they could get away with it. That's a testament to the size and the number of people that were there. And the, the, the high esteem they're being held in. If they do that, they know the people are going to rise up. Because during this time, 
man, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the region of Palestine. It's not just this. There's all kind of, there's zealots and there's, uh, that are trying to, they want to throw off Roman rule. There's just, there's all kind of upheaval going on in this area. And so they're walking on eggshells all the time. So, so they know that they, if they start something here, it could boil over and Jerusalem will just erupt. There's all kind of undercurrents going on. What's the, anyway, we'll talk about that maybe next week. But. Yeah, I thought it was interesting with Barnabas being a Levite and uh, the comment that the, the officials, the officers of the temple were the Levites. And so when you're reading, you know, Barnabas, the Levite, and then here we are in this parallel story that there's these officers and the captain of temple and that evidently those were the Levites which I was like that's kind of interesting yes the Levites served in the temple they would be hearing all this too how many of them how many of them are sitting there listening to it going well that makes a lot of sense (laughs) (laughs) well I believe Barnabas served in the temple but he he's been following Jesus for quite some time we think yeah I was kind of Curious. Oh, I'm sure he's not the only one. I guarantee he's not the only one. Yes, exactly. They're sitting there, and, and the Sadducees, uh, uh, who, who can we trust? Who, who is it that's going to protect us if we go in here and and, and start harassing these yeah. guys in public? Yeah, they're, like, they're, there's a lot of Levites. They're here going, he's making a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, I, think he, I think he might be right. But anyway, we're, we're out of time, so... Um, Anybody want to volunteer?